6-15, as in June 15, 2019, the date on which New York City's rent regulation laws expire. While there has been some regulation in New York City since World War II, most of the modern framework for rent regulation was established by the Emergency Tenant Protection Act of 1974, which authorizes regulation so long as a housing emergency, defined as a vacancy rate below 5%, remains in effect. For rent-regulated units, rent increases are determined by the Rent Guidelines Board. Strengthening rent regulation is a top priority for Governor Cuomo and state lawmakers in the closing days of the legislative session. While there are bills to extend rent protections to additional types of housing and to additional cities throughout the state, the proposals amending rent regs here in the city primarily focus on two things. One, reducing the number of units that can be legally deregulated. And two, reducing rent increases that can be passed on to tenants, particularly after a rent-regulated tenant vacates an apartment or after a landlord makes a capital improvement. On this episode, you'll be hearing two sides of the argument on how state lawmakers should approach new rent laws. First, we'll be joined by John Banks, president of the Real Estate Board of New York. Then, we'll talk to Assemblymember Harvey Epstein, Manhattan Democrat with a background in tenant advocacy and a former member of the Rent Guidelines Board. Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm Maria Dulles from the CBC. We are talking the most pressing topic in New York politics right now, the rent regulations that apply to roughly a million apartments in New York City. This is the chief topic of debate in Albany as the session winds down, and we're very glad to have our guests with us for this episode John Banks, thanks for joining us. Uh, Thanks for having me. So for those who are a little bit unfamiliar maybe or or unacquainted, uh, who are you and and what's Rebney? Um, I am John Banks and I am the president of the Real Estate Board of New York and we are the trade association that represents big real estate um, in New York and um, the 15,000 real estate brokers, both commercial and residential. So how do you capture right now the rent laws are set to expire June 15th. The session in Albany is set to go until June 19th, although we know that can be flexible, of course, and the rent regs have expired before and then they've been picked back up. But but that aside, just generally speaking, how do you capture for people sort of what's at stake right now? Well, what's at stake right now is um, the actual quality of the private sector housing stock is really what we're talking about. Um, we realize and we um, understand that there are going to be legislative changes um, to the rent regulations this year. Um, and we respect that and want to work with our elected officials to um, formulate reasonable um, changes to the rent regulations. Um, but the rhetoric is um, uh, very heated in sometimes, and um, the advocacy community, uh, because they are facing a real problem with affordability in the city of New York and there are challenges, um, the advocacy community is very aggressive in how they are um, approaching changes to rent regulations. So it is going to be a a very um, difficult and interesting, uh, I think we're down to nine days at this point in the legislative session. And what's your, you're looking at an atmosphere obviously with Democrats now in control of the state Senate for the first time in a decade. So Democrats control both houses of the legislature, Governor Cuomo, Democrat, obviously not all Democrats are alike, but um, this is an atmosphere that is less friendly to your voice in Albany. 
Absolutely. And again, there are um, consequences to elections. And the Senate um, went Democratic last fall, and we knew that that meant that they were going to be pushed for changes. And we are um, actively engaged in conversations with many of the state senators and assembly people who are going to be leading the um, charge to change the legislation. And what we're trying to um, explain to them is contrary to the rhetoric is that, you know, most of the owners of uh, residential property, uh, real estate uh, and apartments are not big developments, right? They're small mom and pop um, or, you know, family run businesses that may have two, three buildings, sometimes more, uh, but they are not um, uh, the the type of folk that the rhetoric um, tries to portray, um, you know, very, very wealthy folks living in Manhattan and not caring about the buildings. And so we've been working hard to educate the members as to who the folks are that are going to be affected by the changes that the advocates say they want. If the advocacy community gets everything they want, it is going to present a really, really difficult circumstance for all of the owners in the city of New York. And one statistic that I uh, learned in this process that I thought was most telling is um, 71% of the residential units in the city of New York were built prior to 1947. Um, And therefore, they have a significant capital need um, and constant maintenance and constant efforts to keep the quality of the housing stock at the level that it is today contrast to 25 years ago when the um, changes that people are now trying to push back against were first implemented. Um, Those changes were a response to 40 years of disinvestment in the private sector housing stock um, from the 60s through the 90s. And um, there was a realization back then that we have to do something to make sure that there is not a continued deterioration in the quality of housing stock. And by the measure that was used when these um, uh, laws were changed, um, they've worked, right? The number of units that are considered dilapidated today versus what they were in 1993 is, is significantly um, below. So back in 1993, 23,000 more or less apartment units were um, categorized as dilapidated. Today, that number is, approaches 4,400. So I think there, there's two strains to what you're talking about, and we should get back to the affordability piece, but sticking on the condition here. Um, you know, we did some work at CBC just kind of unpacking the numbers and looking at the data, and it is very true that the deficiencies per unit have come down over time since the implementation of these MCIs. Um, but the private regulated stock still has more deficiencies than unregulated stock, right? Which, you know, you can draw some assumptions there about the ability to increase rents freely and invest that back in the property. And so the fear is, I think, that, and we should explain to the audience about what we're talking about. So when an owner makes a capital improvement, they're then able to pass that along above the rent increases approved by the rent guidelines born into the rent. And so some of the proposals out there now um, would essentially eliminate the ability to do that or limit the time through which that increase can be implemented. Um, so I think that, you know, this is a real concern, particularly since when you see the most constrained type of housing, if you will, when it comes to resources, and that's NYCHA, is in such terrible shape. Um, so I think this is one area where I, I understand the um, the, and we should get the other side to hear we more will. about it, right? <laughs> um, 
you know, the sort of um, ability to play around with the rents by doing these capital improvements. And yet whatever the fix is should not be worse than the solution to bring right. back and, you know, make the deterioration um, increase. Well, when you say to somebody, I mean, I think it makes it's it's simply common sense that you don't want to disincentivize building owners from investing in their buildings and improving them and replacing roofs and boilers and things like that. But where's the balance, right? How does that how does that come into the picture? So where are you on that program, on, on the major capital improvement program? Um, you have some people in the legislature saying, do away with it. You have Governor Cuomo and others who said, let's adjust it. So we, we are clearly in the adjust camp. Um, let me give you one. Do you even think it should be adjusted? Um, there are opportunities for it to be yeah. adjusted. Uh, uh, no program should be static. It needs to be reviewed at a periodic time because circumstances change, and it, it's right to take a look at things and, and modify according to the data. And that's something that we are big on is producing and working off the data. And I'll give you a, a statistic that um, the commissioner of HCR, Ruth Ann Vishnauk, has testified. Um, so for all of the energy and the complaining about MCIs, um, the uh, DHCR the only approved 1,000 um, MCI applications, right? And so if you think that there are a million units subject to rent regulations and only 1,000 MCI um, were approved, and, and just from a process standpoint, um, the owner has to um, make those improvements and then submit justification to HCR for those improvements before they can raise the rent. So, you know, some of the the, the challenge that we have is getting legislators to understand that if, in fact, um, you want to change MCIs, you're only affecting a very small portion of the housing stock. So you should not do something so draconian as to cause problems for everyone else. We do know that the MCA program is abused at times, right? We, we know that the enforcement, the oversight is not what it could be. I mean, what, what, do, you, we, do you agree we, with that? Do you, we agree that there could be much more enforcement, and I don't want to um, target HCR for, for any uh, unfair scorn. They need resources, mm -hmm. right? And they need resources that do two things. Give them more staff to go out and review the uh, MCI applications and the claims. They need more staff to modernize and through technology improve their systems so that, you know, an owner should be able to take a photograph of their receipts and upload them and then they can be scanned immediately. Um, this helps with the workload of the individual um, uh, auditors or investigators who are doing the work for HCR. Um, you can write algorithms that can scan all of that information and if a citywide average cost for a boiler, and I'm making this number up, is $100,000, and someone is spending $200,000, that can pop out, and then that would trigger a different level of review. So absolutely, there are more things that can be done to um, improve enforcement. No one in um, my industry um, who's a REBNY member supports anyone doing anything wrong. It stigmatizes an entire group of people, um, and it's unfair, and it becomes the poster child for pushback against programs that work for what they were designed to do. Um, and so we're all about encouraging and um, participating in additional enforcement mechanisms. Let's go through a few of the others, and and I think given sure. given time constraints, we'll try to keep each one quick. But some of the other big ones that are talked about are doing away with um, vacancy decontrol. Right. So 
The issue of vacancy decontrol, and this is one of the more challenging um, areas that we are working on uh, with the folks up in Albany. Um, there is a, a theory that um, when an apartment becomes vacant at $2,700, that that is an creates an incentive to push one um, a tenant out so that you can bump up the rent to get to that threshold and then take the apartment out of the regulatory framework. Um, you know, one of the things we are trying to explain to people is if you look at that number and you accept the common um, theory that 30% of your income should go to your rent at um, $2,700 a, a month, that income is roughly $120,000 a year. And so the people who are um, uh, uh, going to pay that higher thing are not the people who we are trying to or should be trying to protect, right? And, and nothing in this conversation about changing this regulatory framework is going to create one more affordable unit. Um, it is purely going to keep a, a tenant protection program in place at a, at a level and at a place that is 50 years old, right? It needs to be looked at and it needs to have something that we think makes um, sense. You know, why aren't we means testing these apartments so that people who make two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars a year and have these apartments, you know, you don't want to throw them out immediately, but you need to create a dynamic where that apartment will be open um, after some period of time. And then somebody who is more deserving from a financial standpoint, we'd get that apartment. We've done some work um, that says that at $120,000 a year, roughly the vacancy rate is um, 7 7.5%. Clearly not within the guidelines of an emergency. If you get down to $60,000, you're below 2% of vacancy and you have no options. You don't have the option to move. You don't have the option to, to, to go to another part of the, uh, the city. Um, it really is those folks that we want to focus on and try to create programs and dynamics that help the, the truly needy as opposed to people who have um, the means and are still living in a rent-regulated apartment. What you're getting at there is a distorted market, right, in that regulations you know, are put in place to an extent to, to distort the market but to try to regulate it into some sense of fairness and affordability. But um, in an ideal world, would the rent regulations, I guess all of them, be phased out? over time because that would then bring more sanity to the market? I don't think there um, should be any point where um, all rent regulation um, goes away. I think there is a need as one of the pieces of um, the city's public policy efforts to um, create affordable housing. It should be a part of it. And we can debate whether it's this or that, right? The real problem that we are trying to get to and the challenge is that you know the reason we have a, a an affordability problem is it's a supply issue right we do not have enough apartments in the city to meet the demand and if everyone agrees and i think most legislators that i talk to accept this premise that we're going to have a million more people here within the next 30 40 50 years whenever it winds up happening um how are we going to 
accommodate those folks who are largely going to be immigrant, um, and we want immigrants to come to New York. They're our lifeblood. They're our backbone. If we're going to have a million more people, you have to start to talk about uh, ways to increase supply, right? And that means greater density. That means greater height. And right now, there's a tension between the forces who don't want development because there is also an issue with people who live in communities being priced out of those communities and the reality that it's only going to get worse if we don't build more units. And so we need to do things like um, maintain the regulatory framework in some fashion and produce a significant number of units. And I, I dare say if we were to produce hundreds of thousands, I'm not sure that would be enough to, to correct the market. So to get to put on my academic hat for a second, right? Um, I think when you open up an economics 101 textbook, what thing, something that you study is rent control and the impact. And so I think most economists would say, no, this system is not rational and is not efficient and it does not, you know, allocate resources optimally. And well, part of why we have this affordability crisis because there isn't this churn uh, of apartments from people, you know, staying in places where they get a really good deal, particularly in Manhattan, right? As as rents have escalated. Um, but to say something else, that will make me really unpopular. Um, you know, there. I think there's this real issue, as you said, that this is. You know, there's a certain share of apartments that are. Um, you know, there are high income families in these apartments, and do they deserve the same protection as low income people? But that also low-income folks, just because they're in a rent-regulated apartment, doesn't mean their rent is affordable. And the work That's that we've done right. actually indicates that. Really, the folks who are in rent-regulated apartments can afford, if they can afford their rent, and it's within this affordability metric, it's because they get some other form of housing support. So, if you were going to take out some, you know, to perhaps deregulate or, as you say, means test some of the apartments for the higher-income folks, you could bolster property tax values in these rent-regulated buildings, and then use those resources potentially to, re- you know, to s- support the folks at the lower end who have the the biggest housing burdens. I mean, there's an issue that's being. Um debated now and discussed, and it has to deal with the property tax system and the way class two property tax is treated. Um, if, in fact, the the um, city were to uh, charge the national average of 16 17% of gross income uh, for the production of multifamily residential housing, as opposed to the 30 to 35% that the city does, I think you would unleash the development forces that naturally would occur in the market, and it would begin to adjust some of the problems. But because our tax system is so screwy, it just compounds the problems on top of others. We have to get you out of here in a minute and a half. So we're going to have you back to talk about housing writ large and all these issues around Be glad to development. Do so, But on the rent regs, let's get your, your quick response to two other things on the table. The vacancy bonus, now at 20%. What do you think should happen with that? So the, the argument is that is, again, another incentive for people to um, push folks out of um, their apartments. We would suggest that maybe the answer is to create an incentive to keep people in their apartments so that you would get um, a, a greater increase in your rent um, uh, if um, a tenant stays longer. So if a tenant is there for five years, you get um, RGB plus some other percentage so that you change the disincentive dynamic. Interesting. And... Um the sort of add-on to the rent regulations that's being discussed, this good cause eviction bill that would basically create rent regulations for all apartments across uh, the city or the state. Your take on that? Uh, we do not support it. Um, obviously, obviously, if um, 
you agree with Maria's analysis and, and every other economist's analysis that rent control has not worked, why would you want to repeat that across the rest of the state? What happens in New York is very different than what happens in Nassau and Suffolk and Westchester and Rockland County, um, and let alone uh, applying the same principles to upstate New York, which are, you know, they are struggling to encourage people to come and to develop and to build housing and to deal with it um, in their own way. And so to try to provide a cookie cutter solution across the state as complex and diverse as New York, I don't think is the way to go. And lastly, um, let's take that one aside. Basically, the current rent regulations with whatever changes, tweaks are going to happen should other localities be allowed to opt into those if they have a housing emergency? Do you agree with that principle that if Syracuse, Buffalo, you know, if they wanted to opt in? I, I, I do not agree with that because of what I just said. It, it doesn't work. And, and it would be a fool's errand to try and convince people that we're going to solve your problems by giving you this tool when it hasn't worked in the last 75 years, I guess, we're celebrating today um, uh, the invasion of Normandy. And so rent regulations took place in right around the same time. So if it hasn't worked in 75 years in New York City, why would you want to apply that same solution to the rest of the state? All right. We're going to have you back. Like I said, John Banks uh, of Rebney, thanks for joining us. And stay tuned to hear from Assemblymember Harvey Epstein, who will obviously have a different day. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much. Now we're happy to be joined by State Assemblymember Harvey Epstein. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Welcome. So tell listeners just a little bit about your background and the district you represent. Sure. I represent the east side of Manhattan from the north of the UN down to the Williamsburg Bridge. It's the 74th Assembly District. Uh, it's a really diverse district. It includes large developments like Stytown, Peter Cooper Village, Tudor City, the Lower East Side, lots of public housing on Avenue D. Uh, so it's a really diverse, eclectic lively community. And you are fairly new to the assembly. Yes. This is my second term. I got elected in a special election. And so I'm new, but not new to these issues. I've been a legal services lawyer for 25 years running organizations as well as providing services myself. I know a lot of the issues and been involved with lobbying on Albany issues for decades. And on rent regulations in particular. In particular. Which is why we've asked you here. <laughs> yes, in particular, I've, you know, that in and of itself, when I first started my legal career, I was a housing attorney and I did you know, a solid decade representing thousands of tenants in New York on housing issues. And over the last, you know, 25 years, I've dealt with housing issues on the city and state level, worked on a lot of legislative campaigns. It's something that's near and dear to my heart. And you were on the Rent Guidelines Board. Oh, on top of yes. a good reminder. Yes. <laughs> I spent five years on the Rent Guidelines Don't make Board. Me, make you say it. Yeah. <laughs> and I helped, you know, for, I was a tenant representative on the board and proudly orchestrated the first and the second rent freeze in the 47 at the time year history of the Rent Guidelines Board, realizing that tenants were struggling in New York City and that one way they would get su- support them is doing one year zero rent increases to stabilize homes. So it's the last days of the legislative session. There's a package of bills about regulation um, at play now. Where is the le- well, where is the assembly on these bills, and yeah. what still remains to be decided in that house? Well, as you probably all know, a couple months ago now, maybe eight weeks ago, the assembly through our speaker came out in support of eight of the nine bill package and saying that we're going to be a champion. I think the ninth bill is a tougher bill for our house, but something we're going to do something on. 
I don't know exactly what we're going to do. The ninth bill is what's called good cause eviction, and that is giving all tenants throughout the state the right to remain in their apartment and get rent increases connected to CPI. The goal would be to see that pass in some form, but there are issues talking about every tenant all over the state. Right. It's a big ask that people don't really understand yet. And the, and the other eight are much more changes, adjustments to the current rent right. regulatory system that applies to about a million apartments in the city. Um, and what are you, I mean, what's the vision? Outline the assembly majority's vision for those eight. We can come back to the maybe the just cause. The sure. Good cause, but. So the one that may apply across the state is uh, it, it's extending the EPTA, which is the tenant protection laws that exist, not just in New York City and a couple counties around it, but really to any jurisdiction that's interested that has a vacancy rate of 5% or below. And so if we can get that across the state, it'll be in cities like Buffalo or Syracuse or Rochester who are interested, they could be covered by the rent laws. That's also a limited bill because it's only six or more units, buildings built before 1974. So the universe isn't that expansive. But that would apply statewide. The other bills are mostly New York City focused. And so those bills are really thinking about how we deal with the changes that happened in 1993 and 1997, which weakened the rent laws. The allowed units to come out of rent regulation, to allow landlords to do large increases, and allow pressure on tenants to be subject to eviction. We've lost hundreds of thousands of units of rent-stabilized housing. We've lost a lot of affordable housing. And the goal is to claw that back in this couple of weeks. And so you want to end vacancy decontrol? End vacancy, not only just end it from today, but end it going back to 2013, re-regulate as many of those units we can under $5,000 in New York City, and then not let any units come out of rent regulation going forward. Let me ask you about that one, um, because as we were talking earlier in the episode, you didn't get to hear John Banks, um, but you know it came up in the conversation, um, this idea that do people at that level of rent, $2,700 plus a month, need their apartments to still be regulated? I mean, what's the sort of justification for that? And aren't there quite a few people who stay in these regulated apartments that don't, you know, their incomes don't really justify that. Well, I'll say two things. First of all, the facts don't support this idea that the incomes don't justify it. You, if you look at the average rent-stabilized tenant, they're making $40,000 a year compared to market rate tenants, which make 15000 or more higher. So that's first and foremost. Ten, tenants who are rent-stabilized are lower income. Even at the higher income level, like in my district in Stytown, those are still families who are need stability. There's two sides of rent laws, right? One is eviction protections. Eviction protections are a critical part of the rent laws. It says, even if, let's say, for me and my family, I could afford to pay, you know, $27,000, $3,000 because I have a job that pays a decent wage, that doesn't mean I don't need stability. My kids go to school. My, you know, we have stability with our doctors, our neighborhood, our community. The, the eviction protections are a critical piece of the rent laws that we need to keep in mind. Yes, the other side about the rent increases, that's a factor that affects all of us. And we're not saying that people shouldn't be subject to rent increases, that we should be – that rent increases should be governed by the facts. So these two sides come together for even the higher income people. And even let's keep in mind that higher income people will have higher income increases because it will be percentage of rent based. So if your rent's $3,000, a 2% increase on $3,000 is going to be a lot higher than a 2% increase on 1000 
Okay, sure, but I mean, there. I mean, so the, the affordability question, I think, is very complicated. And one of the things that we highlighted in a recent report that we wrote is that yes, you're right about you know a greater share of low-income people in these rent-regulated units. However, the rent is still unaffordable for them, even. Um, at that rate. And so for those who are, you know, they're getting rent relief really from other programs in combination with rent regulation, like Section 8, for example, right? Um, And so what, you know, the question remains about folks at the higher end of the income, what, you know, at what price is it worth protecting folks who are making more than $200,000 taking up, you know, 30,000 units in the system? You know, wouldn't it be an appropriate idea to think about means testing some of these units? I'd say absolutely not. And I'll tell you why. First of all, it isn't saying the person who's in that higher income unit now is going to have a lower income family move in. It's not the the answer isn't a lower income family is coming into that unit. So that doesn't so that idea is we're going to take a higher income family out, put them out on the street and then put an even higher income family in. So that rationale is doesn't work well. Second of all, means testing is a way to try to deregulate the system. What we're trying to do is preserve affordable housing and preserve affordable housing of people who've been here. So let's say you lived in an apartment for 30 years, right? And you started and you were low income, and then you got a job and you became a professional. And then you, know, you got married and you had kids and you stayed in that apartment. This is your home. This is stability. Now that you're doing a little better, that doesn't mean you should be out on the street. It doesn't mean that apartment shouldn't be yours anymore. This has been your apartment. This has been in your family, let's say, for 30 years. This is, this, it's really important. People who have stable housing are more civically involved. People who have stable housing give back to the community more. People with stable housing join community boards and PTAs. People with stable housing give back to our society. And stability is a critical piece of what we're doing here definitely a little bit of a different way of thinking about it than I think is often is often stated in terms of community stability and family stability than sort of people being able to afford afford the rent. Right. I mean, it's a slightly I, different goal. It's a different goal. But I mean, another thing I want we should talk about in terms of the rent package is the changes to the MCIs and the IAIs. So I think it's been well documented in the press about how landlords, and certainly you've seen this in your experience, can kind of cobble together um, a bunch of these perhaps unethically or um, corruptly um, and push people out of the units. However, there is a concern that if you eliminate the ability to include uh, a rent increase to pay for major capital improvements, the condition of the apartments is going to deteriorate. How do you think about that? Well, first of all, uh, we should be governed by facts, not fear. And that's, sure. and that's what, what well, we hear. But so the facts are that regulated units have more deficiencies per unit than unregulated units, right? Uh, I, I think the facts are that we've seen a decrease in deficiencies in regulated units over the last 20 years. Yes. Well, we, the facts are that we've seen net operating income go up 13 years in a row for landlords. The facts are that landlords are doing better. The facts are that the sale of property continues to go up, so the value of these buildings are continuing to go up. So the facts are that landlords are doing better every single day. And the facts are that there are programs in place for landlords right now, PLP programs, 8A loan, J51. There are programs in place to help landlords who need support. And if the building isn't doing well, they can apply for a hardship increase. So there are lots of system structures in place to help landlords who are struggling or help landlords do offsets on anything they want to do in a building. So do away with MCIs and IAIs? Do away with MCIs and IAIs. And do you think that's where this is heading in Albany? So, so. Harvey Epstein <laughs> right. is an assembly member right. and part of the assembly majority. Correct. Is that where the assembly majority is? I mean, that's the assembly majority's position mm-hmm. that, that the speaker made public. Mm-hmm. 
you know, many weeks ago. It is the position of the Senate majority that uh, Speaker Stuart Cousins, Cousins said publicly. Um, Support for the principles of the bill or something right. along those lines. So okay. yeah. we have to vote on something right. by the end of next week. Do I know what's going to be in that final package? No. Do I think that this will be a positive thing for all New Yorkers? Yes. Do I feel like we want to help small landlords? Of course. Do we want to ensure that landlords do continue to maintain their buildings? Of course. Do I think the package will allow that to happen? Yes, I do. The governor and the mayor have both said reform MCIs. Is that probably where what we're looking at is some sort of change to the system, not elimination? I, I mean, I know you just said you don't know, but I think there's going to be two options, right? We're either going to eliminate it or substantially change it, right? right? Well, that's so, probably true on four or five of these, right? The vacancy bonus we yeah. didn't get to yet, but we can come back to that. But generally speaking, it's right. like, do you go, you know, the full loaf that the assembly's putting out there, right. or do you go somewhere in the middle? Right. right. So I think these all are packaged, and they all kind of play in hand in hand. So MCIs and IAIs, there's a good conversation about soft costs and hard costs. If you look at the attorney general's lawsuit from last week where, you know, landlords are claiming they spent 95000 in soft costs on IAIs, clearly fraud is happening there. That's what she's argued. I firmly believe that. I have represented dozens of buildings and thousands of people where I've seen the fraud happen both in MCIs and IAIs. I believe the system is, is fraught with problems. I think it's true that most of the problems happen in the soft cost area and not as much in the hard cost. Because if you buy a mm-hmm. fridge, mm-hmm. there's a receipt for a fridge, and you can say, here's the serial number for the fridge. It's in that apartment. It's a very different thing than I spent $80,000 on labor, and there's a contractor, and they're going to give a $10,000 kickback to someone else, which is what the attorney general lawsuit is. So, but you bring up a good point about the fraud and, you know, that suggests to someone, well, where are the checks and balances and who's supposed to be monitoring, right? right. And so the state agency who is, that is responsible for doing this, um, perhaps it could be argued is not doing an effective job. Why isn't greater enforcement and enhancing the capacity of the ad agency part of this series of bills? Well, this is something we've talked a lot about in the assembly, that we wanted to increase money and capacity to HCR, the state agency that oversees this. It isn't something that we've seen a lot of support for on on the second floor in the governor's office. It doesn't mean after this package of bills passed, maybe we'll have a different conversation. But we have an institutional problem with the agency. It is a responsive agency, a defensive agency. It just sits – it's like being a catcher. They sit and wait for something to happen to respond. So they're waiting for things to come to them and then act in response. It's not doing affirmative work. It's a very different thing if you are out there doing affirmative work. They do have what's called the tenant protection unit that takes complaints and responds, but they're not out in the community like looking for problems to solve. So I think we need to think about shifting the responsibilities of HCR into like this catcher position into a much more police position of being affirmatively going out and looking for problems and then looking for solutions. So I think we we need a system-wide change to how HCR operates, and I think that's an important piece of what you're looking at. Let me come to, come continue on MCIs for one more sec, but I want to come back to the vacancy bonus um, aspect of the rent laws. Just prepping for talking with you today, I look back at, at your um, campaign website, and you know you had your platform for uh, rent changes that you would push for, and you you said reform MCIs there, not eliminate. Is that something where you've changed your approach on that, or in your mind maybe reform on the website sort of? Could mean anything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a reform on a website meant you know, where it was a conversation piece to start. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think 
the conversation about that you're saying between where the governor and the mayor and the assembly and the Senate are, are in that range of if we reform it, what does it look like? If we eliminate it, what is what's left? And those two things can go hand in hand. You can reform it and eliminate the existing system as it stands and put something about else in its place. You also have on there end vacancy bonus. You don't see any justification when a rent regulated apart, uh, a tenant leaves an apartment for, you know, I don't know, there's, there's some alteration to the rent. You know, they clean up the apartment, do a new paint job, whatever, and, and have an opportunity to raise the rent a little bit. Um, it's obviously now at 20 percent. That's clearly not going to stay at 20 percent. But do you think eliminate it completely or? Well, I would say this. Everything goes hand in hand. Well, MCIs, IAIs, vacancy bonus. Uh, so I think we have to have a conversation with it all in tandem. Do I think right now we should eliminate it? 100%. I don't think there's a justification for the increase. Uh, so do you need to do some work in your apartment? Maybe. And then maybe there's a conversation about an IAI. Mm-hmm. And I haven't said that we should end IAIs for tenants in place. So so I, if so, let's say a tenant's in there and say, hey, I need new cabinets. A tenant can sign off and getting new cabinets, and I support them doing that. They want a new fridge, and they know it's going to cost them $10. I support them doing that. The question is the power dynamics. So if the power dynamics shift to say, well, this is a conversation versus a fiat by the owner saying, I'm going to do all this work. You know, the rent's going to go up by $2,000, and then whoever comes in has to pay it versus, hey, the rent's now this. You know, we have to do work, but do you want to sign off on the kitchen and the bathroom or just the cabinets? And if it's just the cabinets, there'll be a $30 increase. The kitchens and bathrooms will be a $100 increase. And so that changes the power dynamics in a really structure, an important structural way. allows tenants to be part of the bargaining conversation. But yeah, it's a little different. Why, you know, if the tenant leaves, the tenant is a longstanding tenant, right. a member of their community, sure. leaves after 15 years for greener pastures. Right. Now, why shouldn't the landlord have the right to renovate that unit, modernize it, sort of um, and increase the rent appropriately if they see fit, especially if the market rate is now far surpassing what the previous rent-regulated tenant was paying? Well, I, the question becomes what the purpose of rent-stabilized housing is. If the purpose of rent-stabilized housing is to keep affordable housing in New York City, by modernizing it and raising the rent, you're losing affordable units. You can modernize it without trying to raise the rent, then you're keeping affordable units. So the question is the issue of affordability, and we have a city with an affordability crisis. The way to protect the affordable housing is to make sure that we can co- control the rents and rent-stabilized units. So we've just got a couple more minutes with you, Harvey Epstein, uh, state assembly member, Democrat, representing parts of the east side of Manhattan. Um, one thing I'm not quite certain on is I sort of get it on marijuana. I sort of get it on driver's licenses. But on these rent regulations, why would the Senate Democratic majority not be right there in lockstep with the assembly majority? Well, I think they are. The The, the speaker basically said in that these, my speaker and the Senate majority leader came out with a joint statement this week saying we're moving forward in the most progressive package together. I think we are planning to do the most progressive package that we've seen in decades. And the conversation is what we agree on, disagree on. Mm-hmm. I don't. I think we are together. Okay. I think the governor uh, said he's going to support a lot of the reforms we're talking about. And so if we end the vacancy bonus, we end deregulation, we end IAIs, MCIs, I think we can put a package on the governor's desk. And he said he'll sign it. Mm-hmm. He's tweeted it out this week. Put yeah, it on my hey, desk and I'll sign it. He's challenging the Senate. Yeah, right. he's, yeah. So at this point... We just need to figure out what we can get passed in both houses to put on his desk for having to have him sign. And that's the question we have to answer. 
and we all have competing interests and concerns. A lot of it may be around good cause because that is a statewide impact. And so we have to make sure what we're doing, we have enough votes to support, but also have a best understanding that this is what's the best for all New Yorkers. And I will also, um, you know, give the Senate Democrats the tiniest bit of an out in that they're new. They have a lot of new members, a new majority. The assembly majority, you know, has been around for a while and has worked on these issues. So that could be a little bit of the answer of them not having a fully fleshed out package. You know, you I mean, you guys in the assembly majority, as you said, right after the budget, boom, put out your rent package, which, again, was sort of a repeat of past packages. They didn't have that ready to go. Right. Because so they didn't have there was they didn't have a majority. Right. Yeah. Right. So um, or even close to the same members. Um one more thing I wanted to ask you about. I don't know if Maria has anything else, but um, when when John Banks was here, you know, one of the one of the interesting things that he brought up is, you know, he's got some problems with rent regulation in, in philosophical terms because it's clearly not doing that much about the city's affordability crisis, right? It's not you know solving that by any means, right? And not maybe right. that's not that, the purpose. I, I, that right is like okay. I, I yeah, totally ahead, disagree go ahead, go ahead, that it's it is dealing with a lot of our affordability crisis. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's exactly why we don't have two hundred thousand people in homeless shelters today. Okay, so it's not it's helping it not get worse. Oh, that that, that and if we had not lost the the, the two hundred fifty thousand units over the last two decades, we wouldn't. If you look at the twelve years of the Bloomberg administration, we went from twelve thousand homeless people when he started to fifty eight thousand homeless people when he left. At the same time, we lost one hundred fifty thousand units of rent-stabilized housing. There's a direct correlation to losing affordability and the increase in homelessness. 43% of people who enter the homeless shelter say they come out of rent-stabilized housing. By keeping rent-stabilized housing in place, we keep people housed. It's a bottom line. Are you sure about that first number in the Bloomberg years? That seems low, 12,000. 12,000. Go back and look. 12,000 to 58,000. But part of where also I was going on that is that one of the things that John Banks said is that he believes – there's a need to build a lot more housing in New York City. And so let's just take the rent regulations aside for a second, but as a piece of the much bigger housing and affordability uh, issue, do you agree with that? Yeah, we need to build more housing and we need to do affordable housing. I'd love to see a new Mitchell Lama program for middle income housing. We need the state to step up its responsibility on state owned land and build as much affordable housing as we can. Anything else? We could go on forever, but we should leave it here for now. All right. Harvey Epstein, uh, State Assembly member from Manhattan. We'll see how this all – hopefully by the time people listen to this, it's not an outdated conversation with the way things move in Albany. But uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you both for your time and appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Bye.